Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Helene Cooper, is the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times. She's also the author of the new book, Madam President, The Extraordinary Journey of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, which is a biography of the Liberian president and Nobel Peace Prize winner who was Africa's first female head of state. Helene was born and raised in Liberia. Her family fled to the United States in 1980 when she was 13 years old following a coup. Her immediate family was brutally targeted during this coup, and she describes the trauma around those events and also the search for her sister with whom she became separated during this time in her critically acclaimed book, The House on Sugar Beach in Search of a Lost African Childhood. Helene discusses some of these experiences in our conversation and describes how a near-death experience covering the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 motivated her to go back to Liberia. We kick off this conversation with a discussion of the upcoming elections in Liberia and her newest book about Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, before having a longer conversation about her experiences as a refugee to the United States and finding her lost sister in Liberia. Big thank you to Helene for speaking with me. I've been a fan of her work for a long time, and I, I know um, from experience having interviewed a number of you know working journalists that it's often hard to fit in time to speak with me when you're covering stories and chasing deadlines. So just huge thank you to to Helene for for speaking with me, and to all of you out there listening. Thank you for listening. We're heading into the fall. It's uh, it's after Labor Day now, and we are gearing up. I am gearing up for the UN General Assembly, which is happening the week of September 18th. I'll be in New York covering all events around the UN, and, and maybe I'll, I'll see you around. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, search our archives, or become a premium subscriber and open up a number of rewards and bonus episodes Go, go to uh, globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more uh, about that. And now here is my conversation with Helene Cooper of the New York Times. While the uh, Liberian elections that are coming up in October are at the moment a total free-for-all, um, you have a whole bunch of characters who are running for office. Some of them are former warlords. Uh, some of them are guys who are on the American no-fly list. They're advisors to uh, former advisors to Charles Taylor, who was basically run out of town in 2003. Uh, they're a whole host of uh, very interesting political characters is kind of what makes the idea of the Liberian election so interesting as a journalist to think about covering. We've even got the same football player who Ellen Johnson Sirleaf beat in 2005 when she won the presidency is running again. He's and running again. Time, George Way was his name, right? George Weah, yes. Yeah, Weah, yes. yeah. And he's 
He's running again. Um, he's allied with Charles Taylor's ex-wife. I mean, there's it's, it's and, and we it's should say for people who are, un- who are unfamiliar, Charles Taylor is the former president of Liberia who is now serving time in the Hague for war crimes committed in Liberia and, and neighboring countries as well. That's him. Yeah. yeah. So and- um, he. So I, I, it's a, it's if we, you know, if you think the American elections or American political cycle is interesting, you got to take a look at Liberia. It's fabulous. What, what I would love to learn from you, I, I know you have just published your biography, a book about Ellen Johnson's relief, the the outgoing president. What kind of legacy does she leave on on the country that's facing this kind of wild election season? Well, she's. Um, I think the 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 biggest legacy she leaves is the fact that she was the first woman in African history ever to be elected president of an African country. And that's a huge deal for a continent that's pretty patriarchal. Uh, so you can't, there, uh, there she has her, her admirers and she has a lot of critics, but the one thing you can't take away from that is that was sort of a seminal achievement that's very much on the same uh, level as, you know, Barack Obama becoming the first man, uh, black man to be elected president uh, in the United States. This is a big deal for women in Liberia. It was a huge deal for young girls in Liberia who now think that they can, who now routinely say that they can grow up and be president. So that was, that was sort of the culmination, I think, of this female political movement uh, was getting her elected. And she's ruled now for six years. And this is the end of her second term. And she is stepping down, um, uh, which is something that is also fairly rare in African politics, where you know most of the many of the African heads of states, as you know, don't don't leave until you put a bullet in their head. Yeah, yeah, the uh, the the third termism, as as they call it. Um, but she's she's resisting that, and she'll probably win that. Was it that that um, Mohammed uh, or that 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 award that they give to uh, Mo Ibrahim? Yeah, Mo yeah. Ibrahim award. Yes, I can see a Mo Ibrahim award for her in the future. But um, I, so so I mean, obviously, it is uh, undeniable she was the first female African elected head of state. But also, I mean, it seems that from the time she took office, um, what was it, like two thousand six till now, yeah. there was just like a remarkable transformation in in Liberia itself. I mean, I, I've been there twice, once in two thousand eight and once in twenty twelve, and the the, just like the the transformation just in those four years was was remarkable. Um, the more like all all the construction and all the infrastructure that had been built built up in in just that short period of time, and it seems that she is leaving uh, the country in far better shape than she arrived at, at it in. That's certainly true, though that is not necessarily that hard to do. The country was a basket case in 2005 when she was elected. It had just come out of almost 15 years of civil war, and that 15 years had just followed 10 years of uh, mismanagement uh, that had bordered on civil civil war. So you're looking at like coming out of 25 years of political crisis. Um, you'd seen so many people killed. Uh, there was no electricity. It hadn't been electricity since 1990. Um, you had this is where you know the whole child soldier phenomenon was born. You had entire generations, an entire generation in Liberia that had seen nothing but war. So when she took over, the uh, it was in such a huge, huge hole, uh, the entire country, and it, she's definitely pulled it up. Um, Liberia is doing a lot better now. Uh, we have electricity uh, in Liberia these days, uh, running water, uh, though it's not all over the country. Schools are open. Um, there's a lot of building, but there's still a long way to go. This is a very, very poor country that still has a lot of, in the government, um, there's still a lot of corruption. 
there's uh which seems to be endemic in Liberian society there's still very much of you know a who do you know type of society uh, uh class structure that can sort of keep some people behind um and there's a lot there's a lot of work that still needs to be done but i don't think any anybody could have could certainly in in 12 years turn Liberia from the state it was in into Switzerland. I think that would be unrealistic. So she's definitely done uh, a decent job, uh, particularly compared to the men who came before her. But that that's, that being said, I still think there's a long way to go. Uh, and so why of all the subjects in the world did you decide to pick uh, her to write a book about? Well, Liberia is my country. Um, I'm from there. I am uh, a native Liberian daughter. Uh, That's where I grew up. And so I've always been really fascinated about what, you know, what's going on. I now live in the United States and I'm an American citizen, but I'm still Liberian. And so I'm, I followed the war, the civil war there, you know, with my heart and my mouth worried about my family members who were still there. And then all of a sudden, you know, after years of living in the United States and being almost not ashamed of Liberia, but watching with horror when Liberia was on the news and it was always something horrific. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in New York where I was working for the New York Times on the editorial page at the time, and I watched with my mouth open as Liberian women just staged this democratic coup and got a Liberian woman elected president. All of a sudden, I felt so proud. You know, this is not something I was used to seeing, Liberia leading the way and doing something that the United States had not managed to do. Um, And it was immediately a story that I was fascinated by, and I knew right away that I wanted to write about it. I wanted to write about why. I wanted to write about the women that got her elected and how is it how it is that they did it. And so I sort of bided my time while I was working here in the U.S., uh, covering the Obama presidency um, until the end of the Obama first term, where I made a deal with the Times that I could take a year off leave for 2013 and go and write about Ellen Johnson's release. You got to cover two historic presidencies in, in a short yeah, period of yeah, time. Yeah, one after another. Um, so, you know, I, I know that, I, so I, so I first encountered you and in, in your work, I think it was when you published your, your first book. I remember going to a, a book event. I think it was at the New America Foundation. I know we have a friend in common who was, uh, mm-hmm. helped lead it at the time, Steve Clemens and, and hearing your book talk and, and it was about around the time I went to Liberia for the first time. So I was like very keenly interested uh-huh. in, in, in learning more. And I just, just became fascinating with, with you and your work and your story. So thank you so much for speaking with me and, and sharing a little bit of of your story um i think your 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 family history is a little bit of a history lesson in liberia itself right like your your ancestors are among the the original sort of uh ex-slave settlers yeah liberia was founded by former slaves and black freemen uh there was a, a sort of class of black freemen from the united states who were free there were freed blacks living in the united states at the same time that there was slavery going on and the American Colonization Society is a group of uh, sort of white slave owners and northern abolitionists got together and decided that they wanted to send these freed blacks back to Africa. The idea being that you couldn't have freed blacks and enslaved back blacks both living side by side in America because the freed blacks would give the enslaved blacks the wrong idea that they could be free to. So they sent these people back to um, Africa, um, and my great 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 grandfather uh, Elijah Johnson was on the first ship that sailed from New York Harbor, uh, arriving in Sierra Leone in 1822. It was Freetown, Sierra Leone, and then eventually made its way to Liberia, where it founded the country. 
Um, and then on my father's side, there were five Cooper brothers who were on a ship in 1829 that went to Liberia. Um, so on both sides of my family, I'm descended from these freed blacks. Now, these people set up, it was really, it's such an interesting story because they set up the same kind of antebellum society uh, that they had fled from in the United States, except this time they were the ones who were in charge and the rest of the Africans who were made up Liberia's indigenous population were the became the servants and the workers and fields and that sort of thing. And so you had this two-tier system that was very, very imbalanced. And that stayed in place for 150 years until 1980 when there was a military coup in Liberia and native Liberian um, members of the armed forces overthrew the government, uh, killed the president and his cabinet, and installed themselves in power. And that sort of started the and, had a, the political chaos that led to the Civil War. And and what kind of family were, were you born into, having descended mm -hmm. from that kind of elite class? Well, to me, it was a normal family. You know, I had a mom and dad and sisters and brothers, and we lived in a house on the beach. Uh, I went to the American school, um, and we, you know, I had what I thought was a perfectly normal life until I was 13, and the coup happened, and that sort of upended everything. My father was no longer in the uh, government at the time uh, that the uh, the coup happened, but he, he was still shot, and, you know, my family was attacked. My uncle, who was Minister of Foreign affairs was killed and we ran away after that and came to the United States. How, how did you um, end up, end up fleeing? Like what were the, the circumstances of it? I, I know it's something you discuss in, in your book, but what, like, how did you actually get out of the, the country? We got on a Pan Am flight uh, that left Robertsville Airport in May of uh, 1980. We came to the United States on visitor visas, tourist visas, and then just sort of overstayed our welcome and never went back uh, home again. And that was something that a lot of the um, uh, the people who were targeted during the coup were doing. They just ran. I mean, Liberia and the United States are very close, uh, uh, closely related. Our flag is very similar to the American flag. And so the United States was sort of the obvious place that so many Liberians um, uh, ended up running, running away. Yeah, to. The, the capital is named after an American president, right? Yeah, yeah, Monrovia. Um, so, what did you think of Monrovia when you went there? Um, it was so. I mean, I almost felt like two different places uh, from 2008 to 2012. And I, I should say, in 2008, I was there for a very short period of time. I was with Bill Clinton, like following him around mm -hmm. as part of like uh -huh. a traveling press corps. So we were there, uh -huh. you know, like with this huge entourage. It was right after Hillary lost yeah, to Obama you didn't in the to primary. So it was yeah, uh -huh. we weren't like down in the in the yeah. trenches. The second time I was there um, was with uh, the WHO on a reporting trip, and um, so I was there for a little bit longer of a time and had like a little more freedom and uh -huh. so yeah it was like two different two different places and and frankly the secure like you, there are far fewer like peacekeepers around as well even in in, 20, uh -huh. in 2012 compared to 2008 um yeah they're all gone now yeah 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 there's only like tw i was just looking this up before there's only about 1200 left and you know there used to be like 12 thousand or 15,000 yeah. at one point. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of from a UN perspective, I cover the UN and global affairs. Mm -hmm. So it, it was, it's very much considered like the success story. Um, yeah. One of the success stories of like a country transitioning from civil war to, to kind of post civil war. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess it, so my, my impression, so those are, that was basically my, my impression of, of Liberia. I did get to meet Ellen Johnson's sort of leaf both times. I was there though. I shook mm -hmm. her hand somehow in that same reception mm -hmm. hall of the presidential palace. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, so it was, it was just kind of a, a fortuitous coincidence. Um, but I, I was um, really interested to see your, your piece in the New York Times. Um, I guess it was in January in which you kind of recounted a bit of your family's uh, fleeing from Liberia in the context of President Trump's ban on, on uh, you know, people from mostly Muslim countries entering. Did that like kind of trigger those, those thoughts back for you of, of kind of fleeing uh, country? Yeah, it's hard not to because um, I'm a refugee, uh, and that's you know that's my whole history here. So when uh, President Trump signed his Muslim ban and he did it to the Pentagon, which is what I cover now for the New York Times, there was it was impossible for me not to think about my own past and how I got there. And I, you know, it was very much on my mind um, that day after I filed my story. And then I went back and the Times asked me if I want, I think I tweeted something like, you know, I think I tweeted, you know, as a refugee myself, this one hits home. And I think an editor at the time saw that tweet and asked me if I wanted to write about it. So I did. And I think, but I think that's sort of what's interesting about all of us here in the United States is I don't know of any of us except for the Native Americans who don't have that kind of story somewhere in our background. I mean, how often um, do sort of events in the news kind of trigger recollections of, of a traumatic kind of past that you had, you know, when you were 13 years old fleeing, fleeing your home? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think not that often, but I do remember that after September 11th, I did feel a little bit, uh, I did go back in my head to the coup. Uh, that happened in 1980 when I was 13, and I remember feeling unsafe. I'd been, I felt safe in this country for a long time, and suddenly I felt unsafe. So every once in a while, you know, something comes, flares up that triggers it. But by and large, I don't go around, you know, having flashbacks all the time did, because. Did you feel unsafe from like the external threat of terrorism or like upheaval within the country itself? I don't remember. I, it's hard to say. I remember lying in bed after September 11th. And I lived pretty close to the National Airport, and you could hear fighter jets overhead, and just this sense of disquiet that took me straight back to you know the time of the coup. And I think it's it's something to do with you know you wake up in the morning, and everything is completely normal, and then all of a sudden you know boom, something happens that you weren't expecting. And it blows your whole world apart. And that's very similar to what happened to me in 1980. That's, for some reason, September 11th cast me back there, even though it's, so, it's not similar at all. It was completely two different random events. It is weird how, how like trauma just kind of has that, uh, that that's a randomness to, to those, those kind of triggers. Yeah, yeah, it uh, is. It's really interesting. Um, so I'd love to, to learn how you got into journalism, having sort of fled... Um, Liberia, not as refugees, though. You were just, uh, you overstayed your tourist visa and claimed asylum, I assume, right? Not asylum, no. I just overstayed the tourist visa and learned an American accent and pretended I was American. So okay. it's not technically refugee status, but mm -hmm. that's a, I think that's a legal term. And, and, and so how did you, I mean, just start integrating into, into American society as, as a teenager, having, you know, gone through these experiences, but also, you know, having, uh, I suppose, like never lived in, in like, you know, North America before? Um, you know, with teenagers, I think it's well, all you want as a teenager is to be like everybody else. Um, and so I, because I had gone to an American school in Liberia, I was able to fake the American accent. But I really spent a lot of time the first few years I was here just trying to disappear into the crowd. You know, I didn't want anybody to look at me. I didn't want to be the new girl from Africa. I didn't want to have a different accent. I didn't want to be weird. And so I, I spent, a, I feel like I spent years of my 
uh, my entire teenage life faking it and pretending I was somebody, you know, I squelching where I was from and trying to fit in with everybody else. So it takes, I think for me, it took maturity and adulthood to realize that that's not what you're supposed to do. But at the time, nothing seemed more important to me than just to be like everyone else. And now I look back at it, I'm sort of ashamed of that. Um, uh, how did you get the journalism bug? Um, and where where did you end up in All the United the States? Men, man. Oh, uh, really? Know? Yeah. Well, was, are grade. you about? Yeah, that has to be about yeah. right. That movie came out yeah, when? It, and... I, it wasn't the movie. It was the, it was in eleventh grade. My um, AP American history teacher assigned us um, the, the book All the President's Men. Uh, so this was like what nineteen eighty two, eighty three. And um, I read it, and I was just completely bowled over. It was, um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I also had become a news junkie after moving from Liberia to the U.S., and I would spend every night watching, you know, the news on TV. And it was sort of, it, it, it just felt to me, once I read All the Presidents Went Men, it just felt nat- as natural to me as breathing. I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. And I've never, you know, I never, I never looked back from there. I never, when I went to college, I majored in journalism. I went to work for the college newspaper. And then uh, it has always been, you know, from the time I was 16, it's like, this has been what I wanted to do. Well, have, have you told Bob Woodward this? I ran into him once on Meet the Press, and I try, I like, I completely like. I was such a dweeb. I'm like, you know, it's because all the presidents spend and I got it. He just sort of looked at me like, yeah, okay. He's like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> I think people, I think people tell him that all the time. <laughs> you That's might really get funny. that a lot. <laughs> you just kind of like freeze up in front of him. I imagine like you, yeah. you've we already covered presidents all around the world. Like freeze know, up in front of Bob Woodward. <laughs> of course, I know. I'm a total yeah. nerd. It, it it happens. So so you ended up so so that was it that it was it was it was that book uh I you know I have to admit I don't think I've actually ever even read that book. The book is really good. Yeah. The book is better than the movie. Uh, but the books are always better than the movie. Usually, the, and the usually. movie is that's, that's not to say that the movie isn't great because I think the movie is great. Um, but the book is fantastic. So so what were your like? How did you get that first gig in in journalism then? And were you always interested in like international events, or did you want to? Yeah, to, okay. that's partly because of where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wanted to be part of the the world, and I wanted to travel. And I didn't want to, you know, one of the things I really miss when we moved from. Liberia to Knoxville, Tennessee at first was that nobody knew where Liberia was and nobody knew where I was from. And I felt like that's another one of the reasons why I would watch the news at night, because I wanted to watch World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, because it would make me feel like I was part of the larger world. Um, and so when I started off in journalism, I mean, I got a job with my college newspaper. And then I got after um, after I left, after I graduated from college, I went to got a job with the Providence Journal Daily Newspaper in Rhode Island. And was very happy there for a few years. And then I got hired by the Wall Street Journal in the Atlanta office. But even by that point, I was like 24, 23, 24 by then, I was maneuvering to get myself into international journalism. And so when the journal got an opening in the Washington Bureau covering international trade, which I knew nothing about, um, I put my hand up for it because I knew it would would get me, you know, on a plane to all sorts of places. And I really actually ended up loving covering that. And then I moved from there to, you know, covering uh, being a foreign correspondent and, you know, the rest of it just sort of fell into place. Like all, all this while, were you still keeping in touch with family that had been sort of stayed behind in, in Liberia? I mean, this was probably what, like the late 90s or during, 
you know, kind of the worst of it. And then, and then mm-hmm. the, the 2000s, yeah. early 2000s. I went through a long period um, in which I cut off all my family in Liberia. And this was during the worst parts of the Civil War. There was a sister there who I went 15 years without talking to. Um, and this is part of my own sort of um, screwed up detachment. I think in my mind, I was so worried that I decided that if I killed everybody who I loved who was in Liberia in my mind, then I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me when they died. And I was sure they're all going to die in a war. And it was a really a weird, horrible way of like running away from something that was happening. Well, it's a coping it mechanism. Took a, I mean, yeah, 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 but it's a, it's a pretty shitty one. Um, but anyway, I uh, eventually came back to my senses in 2003 after I had this near death experience in Iraq where I was covering the Iraq war and I realized that it was, a st- you know, if all the wars for me to be dying in, I should be dying in a war in my own country, not in Iraq. And I ended up at that point going back to Liberia and finding my sister who I hadn't seen well, or well, talked to in can, 15 years. Can, can we go back to that, that moment in, in Iraq? How, so you're sure. presumably re-embedded with a unit that was covering the, the U.S. invasion? Yes, I was embedded with a third ID and it was with combat engineers. And we were outside of Samara um, when the Humvee were pounding. No, wait. Yeah, this is outside of Nazaria, not Samara. Um, and the, we're, um, they were pounding this um, this village uh, with um, multiple rocket launch systems and we're bombing them. Um, and I was in um, a Humvee that then got run over by a tank, an American tank that was behind me. And it crushed me to the wheel. It, the people I was sitting, I had been sitting in the back seat, and I got pinned to the wheel uh, from the back when the Humvee, when the tank ran over my vehicle. The people who were in the fronts just sort of exploded out, and I was stuck. And it wasn't until they, I mean, they were calling for the medevac, and they thought I was bleeding out. I wasn't. It turned out being, you know, oil that had like exploded all over me. Hmm. But there was a moment there when I'm. They finally backed the tank off of the top of my back and pull me out and I'm in the sand lying on my back. And it really was in that moment, you know, that I thought about Liberia and I'm lying there thinking, I can't believe I'm dying in Iraq. You know, I should be dying at home. I should be in my own country. Did when, after you had recovered from, from that, that uh, injury, I mean, were, it sounds like you're, you're badly injured or was it? I was not, I was fine. I walked away from it. I thought I was injured, but I wasn't. Um, you know, I had scrapes and bruises, um, but no, it wasn't blood. It was oil, and I kept going. I, you know, for a moment, I was like, oh, great, this is my, my ticket out of the war, but then it turns out I was fine, and so I kept going. <laughs> I had to stay. But but you made, but that was your way of processing. It was saying, I got to get to Liberia. Yeah. And you yeah, had not been, you had not been since 1980? No. So what? when did you go back? How did you go back? Three months later, I came back uh, after the war, uh, Iraq war. I came back to the U.S. And I told my family, uh, my mom and sister, uh, that I wanted to go home and I wanted to find our sister who we hadn't seen in so long. Um, and I just, uh, I got, um, I bought a ticket and went home. And and at that time, this was like probably late 2003, 2004. So, the, so Charles Taylor had, was- had gone by that point, right? He was just leaving as I arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they, he'd gotten safe passage to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I arrived like a couple of days after he left. And the place was still, the war was technically 
dying out. It had, uh, with his leaving, the war ended, um, but the place was a complete, um, it was war. It was, it looked like the ruins of, of somewhere. It looked like a city. Monrovia looked like a city that had just been through 15 years of war, which it had. And how, I mean, how did you like process that that experience, having left a country under dire circumstances, but knowing a, a, a Monrovia that was like a you know comparably to that point, like a metropolis, I would imagine. Yeah, it was hard because you're seeing a place you haven't. You're seeing you're going home, and so it was extremely emotional. Um, uh, for me, um, I'm seeing things I haven't seen in two decades. I've grown up. I left as a like a child, and I was a grown up reporter. Um, at the point that I went back, I saw people I hadn't seen in decades. Um, it was really, really. It was an extremely emotional, emotional time for me. And but it was sort of grounded in this mission that I was going to find my sister and I found her. And that was like, I mean, that whole is the subject of the, my first book, but that was the whole reason why I went and it, you know, so there was a lot of joy in there as well. You know, there's the horror of looking at what your country has become, but there's also the, Oh my God, you know, this is I'm home again. And there's a, there's a lot of emotion in that. And and if I recall from your book, your, your, the sister was was not your blood relative, but but like basically an adopted no, sister. No, she was an adopted sister. Yeah, yeah. that your family, for, for under the circumstances, had to leave behind at the time. Is that right? She had chose to stay because she didn't. We adopted her, but adopted is like we, I mean, adopted in the same way. I mean, I was a refugee, yeah. so it's not a legal adoption. But she lived with us. But when we were running away, my mom asked her if she wanted to come, and she said no because she didn't want to leave her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't, you can't blame her for that. Of course, she didn't want to leave her mom, and nobody knew at the time that Liberia was gonna go through twenty five years of horrific war. Um, so she stayed and, you know, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't see her again. Um, but through circumstance in life, you know, it happened that way. And, and, and there were times, how did you find her? Um, I called the last I had heard cause I had, there were people I knew who had heard, who had seen her before the last place I heard that she worked was Firestone. So I called Bridgestone Firestone, which was based in, in Tennessee, and I called their corporate headquarters and said I wanted to talk to the plant manager in because they were still Firestone still existed in Liberia, and I wanted to talk to the plant manager in Liberia, and they gave me the number and I called the plant manager for Firestone in Liberia, and it took like several days and finally he comes on the phone and I said my name is Helene Cooper and I'm calling um, to try to I'm trying to find my sister Eunice Boo, and he said Eunice isn't here right now. And I, was, I still remember going, holy shit. <laughs> it was just like, it's like, I was waiting for him to say, you know, she died. I don't know who you were talking about. Anything like that. But it was like, Eunice isn't here right now. And I was like, I was like, well, tell her I'm coming home. And, you know, and two days later, I was on the plane. That's amazing. I mean, there, there's something almost poetic about calling the headquarters of the state to which you fled to find the sister yeah. that you left behind in, <laughs> in, in Liberia. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, how's she doing now? Was the last time you, you, you talked to her? Uh, she was just here visiting, um, a couple of months ago. Uh, she's doing good. Um, she's still working at Firestone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, she's had other labor pensions, uh, 
office there. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to see her again in a couple of weeks because I'm going to Liberia to cover the elections. Great. Well, in the, in the last moment, can you just tell me a, a little bit about the Ebola episode? I mean, we, we, we know that Liberia you know, really did improve dramatically after the Civil War, but then Ebola was just like a punch mm-hmm. in the gut. You, you won a Pulitzer for, for your uh, reporting yeah, the Times won a Pulitzer. Yeah. But it was a, it was a hard, it was a, this is a horrible thing for this country to go through because it had literally just pulled itself out of this civil war, and to get hit by something like that—that's like the plague of all plagues. And Ebola is one of these horrific diseases that punishes you for taking care of other people. That's the worst thing you can do to somebody is to tell them that they can't tell a mother that she can't nurse, she can't touch her sick child. You know, no, people can't do that. It's not in the human DNA to look at a loved one who's sick and to say that you can't touch them. It's and, like, and it's that's not, how it's spread. It's so yeah. hard to do. Yeah. And that's how it's spread. Yeah. And so this was like, it was such an enormous challenge for this for Liberia, and Liberia got hit harder than Sierra Leone or Guinea because it got into Monrovia, an urban area, and then spread. Um, but Liberia also managed to come out of it faster than the other two countries because in the end, Liberians got up and they picked themselves up and they did what they needed to do. You know, they put on garbage bags for PPEs and they still continue taking care of each other. That's the one thing they didn't stop doing. They didn't stop caring for people who were sick. Um, so not as many people died of Ebola as normally you would expect. You know, I think the mortality rate ended up being like 55% when normally it's like 90%. Um, so it was, in the end, it was a, a, you know, it was a hopeful, you know, thing about what, a story about how people can pick themselves up, but it was a horrific, horrific thing to go through. And, and you're headed back to Liberia next pretty soon, I imagine, for the elections? Yeah, yeah, for the carnival. The carnival. Yeah. <laughs> a, a little literal carnival or a figure of carnival of the elections? I'm being figured, yeah, I'm being facetious. <laughs> okay. I'm sure it's well, not a carnival, but who knows? <laughs> who knows what I, I mean, but, but, but before I let you, last question, did you, is there any uh, susp- uh, prospect of violence for the election, or is it? are we kind of past that point? I hope we're past it. I don't think so. I don't think that there's going to be violence there. Uh, because people still remember how horrible the war was, uh, and nobody wants to go back to that. So I have high hopes. And watch me, because I said that now, it'll be like riots. But I, I really think we're past that. Uh, well, Helene, thank you so much for your time. Sorry, I kept you a couple minutes over. I will let you go. Uh, but thank you. Thank you so much for your time and, and for your writing. It was a for pleasure your talking to you. Uh, great. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, okay, thanks. All right, big thank you to Helene. And I will post a link to her two books on globaldispatchespodcast.com so you can check them out. And I will look forward to maybe having an episode on the Liberian elections more specifically sometime in the near future, maybe in October around those elections. In the meantime, we have some great episodes coming up, including a preview of the UN General Assembly and some great conversations with pretty interesting people in foreign affairs. So stay tuned. I will see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.